Hello, welcome to Utopia Dispatch, the podcast about reimagining the future and reshaping the world. I'm your host, George, and this episode is a conversation from our recent series, A Climate of Hope, where we explore solutions to the climate crisis that are good for the planet and good for us humans as well. This episode is an interview with Rob Hopkins. Rob is a co-founder of Transition Town Totnes and the Transition Network, and the author of The Power of Just Doing Stuff, The Transition Handbook, and The Transition Companion. Very importantly, he is also a founder of the New Lion Brewery in Totnes, among numerous other projects. Last year, he published a book called From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. In this interview, Rob talked to us about that book and all of the things he discovered while writing it, some of which was featured in the first episode of this series. As you will hear, Rob wrote the book in response to what some people describe as a crisis of imagination that is preventing us from tackling climate change. We thought this would be a great place to start the series, but as we found from talking to Rob, the book also covers so much more, from children at play to governments officially adopting policies on imagination. The crisis of imagination runs deep, but amazing solutions are also popping up all over the place. Hi Rob, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me on. Um, so we're really excited to have you. Um, I think I speak for all of us when I say that we're great fans of a lot of your work from the kind of the Totnes Pound and the transition movement and uh, the beer brewing that you do. Um, and uh, But we, we've got you on to talk about uh, your new project, which is a book called From What Is to What If, and we're, we're really excited to, to speak to you about it. We've just put out a series about kind of utopian thinking and the need to imagine bold new futures. And we're now preparing a new series on climate change. And I think this is somewhere where uh, that falls at the kind of intersection of, of the topics in your book. Um, so, yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, I just wondered if you could start off by giving us a quick introduction to yourself and, and your background. Uh, so I, I live in Devon. I live in a little town called Totnes, where we've been doing transition town stuff for about 13 years now. My background is uh, I've been a permaculture teacher for a long time. I um, am particularly interested in community-led, bottom-up responses to climate change, responses that see it as an opportunity for innovation and connection. Uh, I am a gardener and a father and a swimmer and I am things like that. Yeah. And I've spent the the last two years writing this book uh, about imagination, as you said. Great. Well, um, it sounds like you're a well-rounded human being. Could you could you tell us a bit more about the book then, and and the motivation behind it, and, and what you're trying to address? Yeah, so I spent the last uh, twelve years of my life being very actively involved in the transition movement, which uh, so I do a lot of writing and public speaking and kind of storytelling, I guess, around this movement, which is now, which started in our little town here, and you can now find in fifty countries around the world. And I, uh, I found myself reading about two and a half years ago, lots of people whose work I really admire, particularly in, in regard to climate change. So Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, George Monbiot, as well as writers like Amitav Ghosh and people like that who were, who were writing things where they were saying, 
climate change fundamentally is a failure of the imagination. And then they would move off on to talking about something else. And I'd find myself sitting there going, whoa, 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 hang on. That was really interesting. What did you mean climate change is a failure of the imagination? Go back, go back. And they would never, I never met, I never read anything where anybody really sat with that point and said, that's interesting. Climate change is a failure of the imagination. So why are we having a failure of the imagination? Why would a culture reach a stage when its imagination is failing it? And why would it be particularly uh, happening now at a time when arguably climate change is the greatest failure of imagination in the history of human existence on this planet and and our imagination's not up to the job of figuring out a way around it. So I and then I read some really interesting research that was done in 2011 in America where this <coughs> researcher looked at results from the thing called the Torrance test of creative thinking that had been gone back in the states back to the 1960s big data sets of people and her finding was that imagination and IQ rose together till the mid 90s and then IQ kept rising and imagination went into what she called a steady and persistent decline and when this research came out it was a really big story in America around 2011 it was on the front page of Newsweek uh, there was a lot of soul searching about what does this mean for economic growth what does this mean for Hollywood but I never heard anyone in the climate change social justice uh, agroecology whatever <coughs> fields say well what does this mean for us so it set me off on a on a kind of a, a journey over the last couple of years of interviewing about a hundred people from craft brewers to playwrights to community activists to neuroscientists and psychologists, uh, as well as visiting lots of really fascinating projects to really try and get a sense of what's the state of health of our collective imagination in 2019 why might it be, what might be the factors that are kind of um contracting or uh depleting our ability to be really imaginative at this time in history and what might we do about it what would it look like if there was a concerted collective uh push to reprioritize and rebuild our imaginations so that we are so that it becomes like a superpower and that that imagination muscle that at the moment feels quite flaccid and underworked actually becomes something that's really toned and powerful so i've so i've that's the kind of journey that i've been on really and the book is 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 framed around nine what if questions which for me, I think what if is the, are the two most powerful words in the English language at the moment, the two words we need to be using the most if we're to really uh, find a way through the next 10 to 12 years. Um, I just wonder, I kind of really want to dive into those, um, the issues around, you know, what the factors are that are kind of creating this, this crisis of imagination. But I just wonder first if you after interviewing so many people do you have kind of what's a good definition of imagination how would how would you describe it i think there's there's lots of ways to think about it and how have you been thinking about it? my favorite definition i i always tend to get drawn to the sort of to the to the simplest most straightforward there's lots of very academic definitions my favorite is by john dewey who said that it is the ability to see things as if they could be otherwise and uh, that's really the that's really the basis that I've I've gone at it from, uh, yeah. The ability to see things as if they could be otherwise. 
That's really interesting. We we interviewed um, someone called Darren Webb on for our previous series, and he, his definition of utopia was, um, I think, thinking society otherwise. So there's kind of a bit of a nice, nice. Um, so yeah, I guess coming on to the, coming on to those factors, I, I'm kind of intrigued by this question of of what if, and it sounds like that's something that you know we're used to hearing children say quite a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I actually I remember when my brother was younger, he his his catchphrase for a long time was imagine if, and then he would reel off something about kind of you know if all the pavement was made of chocolate or something like that. <laughs> um, and I guess we often say that kind of children have the most active imaginations, and and we seem to think we lose this ability as we get older. Is is that is that something that's kind of inevitable, or is it a product of our environment and the kind of expectations around it? So one of the women, one of the people I interviewed is a woman called Marjorie Taylor, who's a psychologist who studies uh, imaginary friends and children's relationships with, with imaginary friends. And she's done this research for the last 30 years. And her take was that between children who are three and five, she hasn't seen any decline in imaginative capacity. Uh, so there's something that happens after that, and uh, and I think you know one of the one of the reasons that the researcher who did that work in 2011 put this down to was she said um, was was down to the rise of testing in schools, and I think we have designed an education system which is profoundly uh, damaging to the imagination, where children now are. Um, our report are taking days off school from stress from the age of four because of the because of the levels of testing. You know, in Iceland, kids play till they're seven. They don't even do anything formal. Here, we decide feel it's okay to start testing kids at four. Um, you know, we have an education system which is based around the idea that there is a one right answer in your teacher's head and your job is to figure out what that is you know rather than saying here's a problem there's no right answer to it we're going to figure it out together uh, so there is something that very very quickly in our in our education system uh, crushes children's imagination you know it's, i feel i feel quite clear that actually you know the imagination needs certain things it needs time it needs space it needs us to feel safe uh, it needs us to uh, not feel under constant surveillance. There's very interesting research about that. Um, and uh, what we do with our kids from the age of four is, in effect, we start a process where they are starting to compile their CV that they will need 14, 16 years later from the age of four. We're ferrying them from class to class to structured activity to structured activity. And what's very clear is, is that time for free, unstructured play is massively important to our ability to cultivate an imagination. And, you know, when I was a kid, our, my mum would just kick us out of the house and we just came back in when we were hungry. And children had a whole world of uh, games and activities and uh, places and ways of getting about and a whole invisible culture that adults knew nothing about at all. And that was where children learned to cooperate, where we learned to manage conflict. And now we seem to be generate, producing a culture where children uh, take less risks and um, 
there's fascinating research that if you I read that said if you've fallen out of a tree between the ages of eight and 15 or something, then you are much more likely at the age of 18 to be happy to take risks. And my the concern is that as we produce a generation of kids who aren't allowed to take risks, we produce a generation of adults who don't take risks, which is the last kind of thing that we need to be uh, that we need to be cultivating now. So, so there's something about education that is profoundly damaging, I think, to the imagination. So, one of the things I did for this book was to look for schools and education models which are uh, deliberately set out with the with the idea of cultivating the imagination. And the things that they tend to have in common is they give a lot more space for play. They move away from this idea that there is a right answer to anything. They don't teach by subjects, they teach by projects, and they allow the children to choose the projects, and the school is there to support the children's learning rather than to drive the children's learning. They have much, much less testing. The children spend much more time uh, in nature. Uh, They often use the community as a classroom, so the kids will spend a lot of time going out into the community, identifying people they want to learn from. You know, so the idea that we could have an education system which which reboots itself and regears itself to be in service of the imagination isn't that enormous a leap? Because there are many examples around the world of what that might look like. Wow! So it sounds like we're we're doing kind of our best to kind of essentially stamp it out of children rather than rather than nurture it. Yeah, totally. I think so. Yeah, there's a there's a um there's a lovely quote which I'm just uh, trying to find in the book now where I, one of the guys I into uh, where someone says, you know, that there's there's a very there's um oh, I can't remember what it is now. There's a you know, why is it that our kids lose their imaginations? It's simple. It's because of school. You know, uh, and and you know, at, at the moment, we have an education system, particularly since Michael Gove came in and destroyed everything. You know, now the amount of children taking art subjects at GCSE has fallen by 49, 39%. The number of art teachers in this country has fallen by 20% over the last few years. We are seeing the introduction, introduction of the English baccalaureate, which many schools uh, are competing to to get in because it's it, it gives you higher marks in school league tables but it makes no space at all for art-based subjects so so and in and there is a really important um uh social issue in here in that if you go to private school private schools have incredibly well-funded art departments and if you look on the websites of a lot of private schools they will talk about how they see having a good art department, a good theatre department, a good English literature creative writing strand to what they do as really important to producing uh, well-rounded people who are able to, to do problem solving. In the state sector, for people who don't have the luxury of private schools, the arts side of things is cut to the quick and some schools don't even have any arts stuff anymore. And you know, I think it's really important that, that, that we look at the uh, the social privilege aspect of the imagination in terms of um, austerity, government-led austerity, I think we need to be looking at as being uh, an assault on the collective imagination. That when you go into schools of people who have no choice other than to send their kids there, when you go into communities who are already struggling, 
and you cut the funding for the arts, for the libraries, for community arts projects, you put people into a, a state of anxiety, that is an assault on the imagination of those communities. And uh, and uh, so for me, there's a there's an artist called uh, who calls himself Bob and Roberta Smith, who ran a campaign called All Schools Should Be Art Schools. And uh, and for me, that that feels like such an important message that we need to be reimagining schools so they look and they function and they and they operate in the same way that art schools operate. Um, so you 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 kind of hinted there that this you know the ed- education system is is linked to politics and the curriculum is is kind of um, dictated by by central government and I, I imagine that from what you've said you're probably going to say that this this continues on after childhood through the through later life as well and so i guess my question is what what kind of political and societal factors have you have you found to kind of most affects affect people's ability to use their imagination and also you mentioned this kind of phrase an, an assault and do you think that's do you think that's an intentional assault assault kind of to me implies that there's a, a kind of vested interest in in people not wanting us to be as imaginative as we could possibly be, or for only certain parts of the society to engage their imaginations. Um, yeah. Good question. I, I, um, well, I don't, uh, I don't want to be sort of conspiracy, conspiratorial about it, but yeah. there's an amazing, there's a, a guy in the U S called Henry Giroux, who is a, uh, um, uh, very very sharp political thinker educational educationalist guy in the u.s and he talked about he used this term that really struck me he talked about the trump disimagination machine and uh and he talked about how for him the way that that administration was working and when you when you try to change a culture's history and you cut all the funding for the arts work and you uh, you crack down on on, uh, uh, on on a free press, and you talk about fake news all the time. That is kind of an a, 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 an attack on the imagination in that sense. You know, I don't. I I I, f- I think that you know, there's some interesting research about the people who we are governed by at the moment. Most of them went through an education system of boarding school where there's really fascinating research about the impact that has on the imagination. Some of the interviews I did with, with researchers who talk about boarding school syndrome and about how that particular form of education is very damaging to the imagination. Um, the, um, uh, I interviewed uh, my local MEP here who said, Hmm, interesting talking to you. I've just realized that in the last four years I've been an MEP, my imagination is shot to bits. She said, she said, I just realized I don't dream anymore. There's a, there's something that really stayed with me. I thought maybe we're governed by people who don't dream. Um, so, you know, and capitalism is a neoliberal economics. Capitalism is, is a system that fundamentally exists by creating inequality and widening the gap of inequality. It's a system that, that flourishes by convincing us that we're all isolated from each other and then using that loneliness and sense of inadequacy to sell us things um and uh you know people talk about capitalism as being being a mental ill health generating system one of the one of the bits of the book 
and the research that I found most fascinating because I'd never thought about it before was about the link between the imagination and a small part of the brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus being the, the part of our brain where our memory and our imagination really fire from. So all of those neural networks that fire when we're being imaginative all have the hippocampus at its heart. So in people who have experienced PTSD or high levels of anxiety and trauma, the hippocampus can shrink by up to 20%. And the hippocampus is the one part of the brain that is uniquely vulnerable to cortisol. So when we're anxious, when we're frightened, traumatized, the hippocampus shrinks by up to 20%. And when that happens, we lose the ability to think about the future, to see the future in positive, optimistic, hopeful ways. And we get stuck just going around and around in the, in, in the present or in the past. And, um, and so it feels to me that actually we increasingly have uh, politicians who, who speak to the uh, amygdala, the brain's fear center, rather than the hippocampus. We have less and less, I have a dream politicians, and more, here's a list of things you need to be terrified of, and I'll protect you from them. Uh, we also, I think, need to recognize that uh, austerity, government-imposed austerity, uh, is a, um, an approach which puts more and more people into that state of anxiety, into that state of, of stress where the, where the future shrinks. And one of the most fascinating places that I went to while I was researching this was in Dundee. And there was a place called Art Angel, which works with people with mental health uh, problems with stress and anxiety. And people either are referred by their doctor or they self-refer. And it's a place that uses art as a way to, uh, in effect, uh, re-expand people's hippocampus to, to, to bring their imagination back online. People come through the door completely broken with their imagination in pieces. And it's a project that builds it back up again. And the way they do it is they say, you're not a client, you're not a patient, you're an artist. And when you walk through the door here, uh, you are an artist preparing work for an exhibition. And we will provide you with uh, space and tea and biscuits and paints and paper and support and whatever you need and I spoke to so many people there who said for the last few years I've not been able to think about the future at all I've spent the last three years in my pajamas and actually since I've been here I can think about the future again and I started to get a sense of what it looks like when you set out intentionally to help people rebuild their imagination and the guy who was the director there he said fundamentally what we do is about safety and hope. And when you have a, a society where people increasingly don't feel safe, whether that's deliberate or not, I think what we're doing at the moment is creating a kind of a perfect storm uh, for uh, contracting the imagination in our society. Mm. That's reminding me of, um, I, I don't know if you've read the, the spirit level about inequality. Yeah, absolutely. But that has yeah, yeah. and a lot, a lot of what they talk in there is about the um the kind of the threats that you come under and the stress that you come under just from living in a more unequal society and it sounds like from what you're saying that then has even bigger knock-on effects on kind of your ability to even see a way out of that at all yeah they um, they talk in that book I, about how um about how the more unequal a society becomes the more c cases there are of uh, um, hallucinations and mental illness and and all of that I think feeds into this you know if, if we want to create 
the optimal conditions where people have the least amount of cortisol uh, in their systems and the levels of anxiety are the lowest and we feel most connected, then that in, it means we need to become a more equal society. Absolutely. So, so when we have an economy which is fundamentally designed around increasing inequality, then yes, I think you could say that we are, we are seeing a, a deliberate assault on the imagination in that way. Hmm. Um, so you've touched on kind of education, economics and, and politics, but I guess the one other thing that I want to think about in terms of what's potentially hindering our imaginations is, is technology. And I guess the way I was thinking about it is that we seem to be spending increasing amounts of our time in virtual worlds. And have you seen that? Have you come across that as a, is that actually an aid or is that, is that hindering our ability to imagine? Uh, I think it's, I think it's hugely hindering actually. Uh, the way, the way I like to talk about it when I do talks is I say, if you imagine uh, Vincent van Gogh walking into the yellow house in Arles in 1888, and he's just popped out and he's, bought this beautiful bunch of sunflowers from his friend uh, down the road who's a gardener and he walks into his kitchen with this uh, with this beautiful bunch of sunflowers and he places them on the table in a in an earthenware vase uh, and he sits back and then in, instead of doing what um, what history then tells us he did uh, he actually were to get out his smartphone and check out his Instagram page and then check out his Facebook page and then go on Twitter and then, uh, you know, and at two hours later, he's, he finds himself on YouTube watching videos of, videos of kittens falling off tables. We wouldn't have had those extraordinary paintings which have, which have moved generations and which redefined what art was at the time. You know, there is a really powerful connection, I think, between, uh, between art uh, no, but sorry, be- between imagination and attention. And the, when our collective attention spans are unraveling and are now plummeting then i think that has a real knock on for our imagination because we don't notice so much now we walk around we the, the, the time when uh what's called our default mode network are 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 what what some researchers call the imagination network in our brain our our daydreaming network which means that uh, albert einstein's best ideas came to him when he went for dreamy bike rides in the woods, you know, imagine if Albert Einstein had been addicted to staying home and playing Candy Crush, how different the world would be would be today. And um, there's a guy I interviewed called Sven Burkitz, who I think is amazing. Who he said we are experiencing in our times a loss of depth, a loss perhaps of the very paradigm of depth. And uh, and there's a guy called Dr. Larry Rosen, who I interviewed, who's a neuroscientist who does loads of research on the impact that smartphones are having on our attention spans and why that matters. And this is something he said to me when I interviewed him. He said, imagination is taking ideas from various other places in your brain, things you've heard, things you've done, things you've thought, and putting them together in unique but valuable ways. We don't have the attention span to do that anymore, and it's not just young people. He said, I would say, that our imagination is on the decline exactly in the opposite trend of our time spent on smartphones. You know, we've lost that ability uh, to be alone with our thoughts. You know, we're forever elsewhere. We, 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 uh, time when we should be connecting to our imagination, when we should be looking out of the window and daydreaming thing and thinking what if, uh, you see anytime you get in a lift that goes up more than three floors, out come the phones. 
you know, that's the one of the one of the things that I've done as a result of having done the research for this book, particularly the stuff on technology, actually, is to stop having a smartphone, to have an old Nokia Mars bar phone and to keep a sketchbook in my bag. And so the time that I would normally sit and fiddle about with my phone is actually time now where I sit and do some sketching, sit and make some notes. So I'm trying to kind of deliberately claim that space back. That's my imagining time. I think the problem is that that we live in a time when there are a lot of very, very smart people with technologies that we are evolutionarily incapable of resisting who value our attention much, much more than we value our attention. And uh, and that leads to a, to a situation which I think is really, really deeply troubling where... Uh, you know, what uh, Shoshona Zuboff just wrote an amazing book called The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism, which I would, which I would urge everybody who's re- listening to this to read, uh, which is what, that, what those technologies are enabling and how it means that our imagination is in effect being co-opted, being converted into something that can be traded and bought and sold on what they call the behavioral futures market. Uh, and uh, And I think that the reclaiming of our attention alongside the battle for the climate is, is, is one of the main things that we need to be doing over the next 10 or 12 years. I think it's interesting, just jumping in here, the language around um, that we've lost our, our imaginations. Because I think in all of the people we've spoken to in the podcast and people we've worked with have shown us that when you kind of give the people opportunity to imagine their imagination is still there. They, they have so much creativity within them. And it's, I wonder how much of it is that we've lost our imaginations or if it's just that we, whether do we not feel like we have the permission to, to do anything with it? Or do we feel like we don't have the power? We may, may ask a what if question, but then we immediately shut down those thoughts because we feel powerless to do anything with them. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that imagination ever disappears you know imagination is a human it's like breathing it's something that we do it's it's kind of how we function but it but it's also like a muscle and if we don't work it it becomes kind of flaccid and underused and i think when it becomes underused we're much more vulnerable to people coming in and sort of uh kind of co-opting us i suppose or um yeah, so I, it, it's not that I think the imagination disappears. And one of the fascinating places I went to was a, a street in Bristol where they run a program called Playing Out, where which is about getting kids outside and playing in the street. And what they've done in Bristol is come up with a really easy model where people on a street, rather than having to apply to the council every time they want to close their street so kids can play in it, um, you book out a whole year in advance, and they've they've made the whole process much simpler. So I went up one evening to to this street to just hang out and talk to people, and all the kids were playing outside. And one of the mothers I spoke to, she said, uh, "This is what happens when you take the cars away; the imagination comes back. You know, when you when you remove the things that are squashing the imagination, uh, the imagination comes back because it it's our natural state." Uh, and when people, when there are places where people create the, the the conditions for imagination to come back, it comes back. And I see it in every transition group I go to. I see it in all kinds of different projects. You know, we have that 
that child in us that likes to play, that likes to ask what if. And one of the bits that I, that I looked at, uh, there's a whole chapter in the book is about the ability to ask good what if questions. And, uh, and as activists, the, 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 why it is that we need to step up and come become so much better at asking good what if questions. And so one of my favorite examples of that is, uh, is an amazing project in London called the London National Park City which is this idea of, of reimagining London as a national park, which started with a guy uh, called Daniel Raven Ellison, who's a geographer, who looked at the city of, of London from above and, uh, and realised that 47.5% of London is green space, 2.5% is blue space. So all you have to do is an extra half percent, and then the majority of London is, is green space, uh, is a national park. And uh, so they're doing this phenomenal project where it's to get London designated as a national park city, all based around what if. And they recently posted this, uh, did this thing on Twitter where they invited people's what if questions. And they were, they were things like, what if a squirrel could use trees to get from one side of London to the other without touching the ground? What if we, if more of our, uh, what if we properly invested in green spaces? What if London still had 68 Lidos? What if we saw our front and back gardens as a collective nature reserve? What if there were more trees in London than people? You know, and 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 there's that's the bit I think that we need to unlock. If we have politicians and local projects which are framed around what if questions, asking open ended questions, then people get invited back in. Uh, and their imaginations feel kind of useful again. So it seems like some of these ideas can be quite small. Like it doesn't need to be reinventing society. Sometimes just asking a what if question on something quite trivial and doing things differently. Like the, the Totnes pound, the 21 pound note was a good example of something that was just changing our conception of normality slightly. Um, do you think that's the best way is to start small with like small acts of disruption and then progress from there and ask more what if well, questions? What, what, I, what I set out in, in the book is, is, is the whole spectrum, actually, from, from communities coming together to say we need to get better at asking what if questions. And there's some really beautiful examples in there of, of what if questions like the city in Belgium, in Liège, where the transition group had a project where they said, what if in a generation's time the majority of food eaten in this city came from the land closest to this city? And now five years later, that question has led to the creation of 21 new cooperatives, 5 million euros of inward investment in that community, of citizens investing in the building of this new economy, the mayor of the city telling me, this is now the story of this city. We used to want to be a smart city. Now we want to be a transition city. We see our role as being to unlock uh, remove all the obstacles to this happening and to make all the land we have available to this you know so there's the there's the power of communities coming together to ask good what if questions then there's also the question of what would it look like if the people if our leaders became good at asking what if questions too and created the best spaces for that so can we create the best democratic models that invite uh, what if so citizens assemblies Neighborhood, neighborhood assemblies for democracy like you see in Barcelona, uh, the different models like that. In, in Mexico City, I found the mayor of Mexico City has created uh, something which is in effect a ministry of imagination, which sounds like something out of a Harry Potter book, but it's actually 
something they're doing there where they see the imagination as central to how they plan for the future of that city. In Bologna, they, uh, the municipality in Bologna have created something called the Civic Imagination Office, which sits between uh, citizens and the municipality and basically acts like a resourced transition group using open space, World Cafe, to get people's ideas and then to support those ideas to become a reality. And then ultimately, uh, it gets me to wondering, well, what would it look like if we had every government that's elected says we have a national innovation strategy, but innovation is something you do when your fundamental model works. Ours doesn't. So actually what we need is a national imagination strategy. So what would it look like if we had a national imagination act, which prioritized the rebuilding of the imagination in education, in public life, in policy making. And you might think, well, how on earth would you do that? And would you legislate for that? But there's a beautiful model for that in Wales, in uh, they've called, which is called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act uh, uh, says that all public bodies have to put together a strategy about how they're going to achieve sustainability and the well-being of future generations. Uh, it leaves it to their imagination, to their creativity to come up with that. But then it, it is a very powerful piece of legislation in that uh, now all new things proposed in Wales have to be looked at through that lens. Does Is this in the best interest of future generations? Does this make Wales a more sustainable, prosperous place, but in a definition of prosperity that has nothing to do with economic growth at all? It would be very easy to imagine taking an act like that and using it as a template for a National Imagination Act, where every public body, education, health, was asked, how are you going to boost the imaginative capacity of the people who you represent? How are you going to minimize the conditions which are ruinous to the imagination i.e anxiety stress trauma isolation that gets really exciting because then actually when we if the government said we're going to shut down the libraries we're going to cut funding for the art we're going to introduce economic activity it could have been legally challenged under the national imagination act and in terms of progressing from the imagined to the implemented do you think that that does that naturally happen that once you imagine then you you can do and then that makes you further imagine um i think there is a uh, i think we're at a really interesting point at the moment so with the school strikes for climate which i think are amazing and with the extinction rebellion uh, activities in london uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, which my wife was very, very involved in. And I went up to visit on Waterloo Bridge where they had created and held that extraordinary space on that bridge. You know, that we are now at a stage where Parliament has declared a climate emergency, uh, where the school strikes are arguing for the need to, to declare climate emergency within schools. And, and for me, the, one of the most important conversations we need to be having at the moment is you know, what the IPCC and the United Nations and the climate science is saying is that over the next 12 years, in 12 years' time, we need to be firmly on the journey towards zero carbon. We need to be halfway down that slope. So in 12 years' time, we need to have halved our emissions and, been, and be purposefully and 
intentionally on the way to zero carbon a few years later. Now, if that is a huge ask, and that's what the declaration of a climate emergency calls for, if we were to actually manage that, the period for the, over the next 12 years will feel absolutely extraordinary. It'll feel like the Industrial Revolution compressed into 12 years. It'll feel like a time where everything felt possible. It'll feel like a time where business and communities and schools and universities and individuals all felt they were part of something historic and extraordinary that was happening. And if we manage to do it, future generations will look at that time and sing great stories about it and tell great stories about it. And so for me, that that is a process that will be underpinned and driven by the imagination. It won't be underpinned by a sort of guilt-tripping, miserable, feeling like a long walk home in the rain. You know, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a dream, but it'll probably be a bit expensive and it might inconvenience motorists and uh, it probably won't work anyway. You know, that next 12 years for me will feel will feel absolutely extraordinary. And that concept of a climate emergency has the potential to massively unlock that and if we manage to do that uh, it'll be amazing and if we don't manage to do that and we don't harness people's imaginations for that uh, then uh, then uh, the outcome is really really very deeply troubling I think. Let's hope we can. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's, and so for me that is only going to come about because we become the best most amazing storytellers at telling stories about what that future could be like. You know, I, I see my role and the role of the transition movement and the role of everybody working in, in this field as being to create longing. You know, we need to create a longing for that world. Uh, a utopia, I consider it a world where we have done everything that needs to be done. But what would it look like and smell like and feel like? And what would it sound like? And one of the most fascinating uh, uh, things that I looked into researching this book was the work of a couple at Plymouth University called Jackie Andre and John May, who've developed this thing called functional imagery training, where you work with people who have addictions or who want to lose weight. And you say, uh, you help them to imagine in a multi-sensory way what the future would look like and feel like and smell like if they had made these changes and the results they have are extraordinary in terms of people losing weight and keeping that going and i think exactly the same applies to how we how we manage 12 years if people can imagine it and smell it and see it it makes it so much more likely we'll achieve it creating what they call uh, memories of the future and how important do you think it is that we do this collectively I mean, I guess I'm wondering whether we can have the kind of the, the lone visionary thinking of imagining this future and and rallying people around him to create it versus us coming together collectively and finding our shared goals of what we want that future to look like. Uh, I think I think we need both. You know, we need uh, we need to create what I call what if spaces where communities come, which is kind of what transition has been. You know, we, we create those spaces where people come together with other people and explore what the kind of future they'd like to create is in the context of, okay, let's meet next Saturday and get it, get started. Then the spade, if you bring the sandwiches and, and, and people actually get on and do it. 
I think in our own lives, there's a lot that we can do in terms of reclaiming our imagination, reclaiming our attention, being very deliberate about that. But ultimately, if it's going to be successful, imagination needs to be something that we do together rather than something that we do on our own. And we need to create spaces for that. I went to a, a beautiful event that Transition Town Tooting ran a couple of years ago, which was called the Tooting Twirl, where Tooting has no village green or town square no shared space like that but there is one place it could be which is a turning circle that's normally just full of buses idling their engines so they spent a day where they took over that space and turned it into the village green that it could be they laid grass down they brought in plants and food and color and music and they spent a day living saying what if this was our village green and their their, their thinking was that once people have experienced that it moves from if to when uh, and that's something that we can only really do together I think. I think that was a really nice example because it's about doing something quite temporary and I think when you kind of lower the barrier and, and ask what if and you do projects that are quite fun quite temporary they don't it's not about reimagining the city it's just creating a, a village green on quite a small scale it seems like a, a good way to get people started and spark their imagination yeah absolutely yeah and and uh there's a whole section that I, I wrote about the idea of uh you know if 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 we can imagine what the future could be like in 15 or 20 years time a future of much less cars uh, uh more biodiversity more vibrant communities local food growing everywhere uh etc etc if we can uh create overnight pop-up examples of that where you take a place that people know really well and then and then uh one morning they wake up and it's been transformed into into what that could be like so they get to spend a couple of days living as though that was as though that had already happened and then it goes again that's really really powerful i think uh are some really great examples around the world even the lovely uh, thing called parking day where a group of artists in San Francisco were trying to think where they could get hold of low-cost space where they could do art in public and realised that if you, as long as you bought a ticket for a car parking space, there was no laws that said you had to park a car in it. So they would buy a ticket for the parking space and turn it into an art gallery. And, uh, and then over time, it's turned into this thing where people turn a car parking space into a garden or a library or a yoga studio or whatever and sort of reclaim that space and, uh, you know, I think we could do a lot of things like that, where we give people a visceral taste of what the future could be like, but in the now and in ways that really take places that people really recognise. And then we play with them and we turn them into something like that to bring it alive in the now. I think that's also quite a nice example. It reminds me of um, Kate Reworth's Don economics talking about how how much more creative we are sometimes within limits within boundaries and I think mm. there's something about like a parking space that's quite it's like a limited space but it, and somehow that opens up your imagination more. Yeah, it's what the it's what the French call bricolage. We don't really have that good a word for. Uh, it's is that idea of you know if you impose limits on the imagination, uh, it's like Dr. Seuss writing a book with just fifty words or writing haikus or using you know if, if if i say think of a story where do you go but if i say tell me a story about a mouse living under a piano in a 
in a in a pub you know so one of the activities i like to do when i do talks is something that i adapted from an activity that deborah francis white who produces the guilty feminist podcast does where i get the audience to tell a story about how the place they're in did transition uh, but we use the letters of the alphabet and their suggestions. So there was somebody called Alison. Alison lived in Bromley. Okay, and Alison, what did she do? She was a carpenter, and she was obsessed with donuts. And she and and one day she said, "Who did she meet? She met uh, Elizabeth." And so uh, her and Elizabeth, they discovered they shared a passionate interest in fudge. Or you know, and you tell this ludicrous uh, story, but actually people are co-creating a story about how transition happened. And we live in a time which has a poverty of those. And uh, the fact that theirs is completely ridiculous doesn't really matter. You know, they've created a story of how that of how that happened. And in my experience, when you are giving talks or doing things in that way, if people laugh, if people connect, if people feel their imagination is kind of invoked together with other people, that actually is something that really affects people for quite a long time afterwards. I... I, I guess I'm, I'm going to put my my skeptic hat on just for a minute. And, Do please. <laughs> so like, my first question is really, you know, when when does this kind of become an escapism? Where, where do we where do we draw the line? And, and and when when does it kind of stop us from being pragmatic? And when when should that when should that take over instead? Um, I think uh, it becomes escapism if we if we don't then do anything with it. You know, for me. In the transition movement, uh, we have always the imagining always comes in a context of what are we going to do about it. Those what if questions are always practically uh, embodied what if questions. So, uh, what if uh, it's not you know what if we uh, were all really nice to each other? You know, you can't really do that much with that as a question but actually there's amazing examples of communities like in preston in lancashire where they are completely reimagining the economy of that city based around what if questions and you know what if the the the, the role of this economy was to ensure that as much money circulated as much as it could locally before it left and that as a question invites so much possibility and invites people to step in and say I've got a piece of that puzzle and to ask other what if questions that feed into it. You know, what if we bought our pension funds back to the city and used them to build uh, affordable housing in the center of the city? What if uh, our hospitals and our universities and our key anchor institutions uh, became drivers of the new economy, changed their procurement so that they sourced locally and enabled that money to stay locally? Or in Jackson in, uh, in Mississippi, where uh, they are using what-if questions to completely reimagine how that economy works based around cooperatives, based around uh, social justice. Uh, uh, extraordinary. And that, that whole process is fundamentally rooted in what-if questions. You know, So for me, obviously, if the imagination was us sitting around daydreaming all day, looking out the window and not doing anything, then there's not really much point. You know, It needs to be accompanied by bravery and courage and it needs to be accompanied by action but if we just have bravery and action and we don't have the imagination then i really don't think we're going to get going to get very far at all and the whole point of saying 
We need our education system to produce young people for whom imagination is a superpower. That if you if you feel imaginative in that way, you don't then come out of that system and just gaze at your navel for the next five years. You know, you you come out fired up to do something uh, and to make a difference. Uh, so for me, the imagination is something which is fundamentally uh, embodied and uh, and something that we put into practice in the world. And um, I, I also guess I'm wondering if, you know, you started off by saying that what you kept reading was people saying we had this kind of crisis of imagination and around climate change um, and around the future and, and you kind of one starting to think about, well, what is that and, and how do we tackle it? Um, and I, I think that sometimes, you know, we we kind of see the world around us going up in flames and and we we kind of look for reasons why no one's stepping in to sort it out um but you still are convinced that that this kind of crisis of imagination is is what's holding us back from from tackling climate change as you were when you when you first started out this research or do you think it's kind of you know it's it's just always been there uh i i it's certainly not the only thing that's stopping us from from responding to climate change you know there are clearly very real uh, political blockages and cultural blockages uh, and so on but yeah i i i do i think this you know i think for me the 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 inquiry that that i've done with this really uh has been a real what if process you know i I didn't start out with any sort of firm views either way really and 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 three quarters of the people i've interviewed i'd never heard of before i started so it's been a real kind of what if process in in that way and i do feel like there is a really uh that there is a really important element in terms of climate change and imagination in that we have you know the, the, there's an amazing educational model in in italy in a place called reggio emilia where at the end of the second world war they were all they were left with in this town was a tank three trucks and six horses the germans left behind as they retreated and they sold those things and they built a school which was based around the idea of how do we maximize the imagination of these young people how do we view them as amazing, brilliant learners who want to do incredible things and how do we support them? And how do we design a system of education that makes sure that fascism never happens again? And uh, it's inspired many of the more kind of imagination-leaning models around the world in terms of education. It feels to me like now we're living in a time where we have an education system almost completely opposite to that and it's no accident therefore that we're seeing the resurgence of fascism we have um uh, uh you know that the, we have uh, lots of people for years who've been warning that if children don't play if children aren't allowed to play in a free unstructured way what you do is you create your you'll create a mental health epidemic among young people we now have a mental health epidemic among young people um that that the 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 factors that mean that we are now facing this enormous challenge of climate change with a very tiny window of opportunity to turn it around and we feel kind of paralyzed and don't know which way to go with it i think uh is the the outcome 
in part of us uh, disregarding and ignoring and downvaluing in downvaluing imagination for the last 30 years or so uh, and so if we're going to get out of it we need to be really looking at how do we unlock and appeal to the imagination uh, and that feels like a key for me anyway as somebody who's been involved in in climate work for about 20 years feels like a really really key insight and it certainly seems to resonate with a lot of people when I go around and give talks about it um so we've just got a few minutes left and um you know before we spoke to you we were we were listening to some of the the podcasts that you've put out and and reading um reading you the blog on your website um and you asked everybody the same question at the end of when you spoke to them and so we're going to put it back to you um <laughs> so if you were elected as kind of president of the planet on the platform make the world imaginative again and bearing in mind we're facing this this environmental crisis in front of us what policies would would you enact in your first hundred days of office what would go into your your national imagination act international imagination act very good very good yeah no uh, uh, okay so um i i think i would I would form a, a ministry of imagination within my government. I would make sure that the administration that I created uh, was truly representative of the of the culture. Uh, it would it would have uh, it would like in Barcelona. It would be based around the idea of the feminization of politics, bringing bringing a lot of women into politics. Uh, it would. Um, the, one of the things I love about the Mexico Ministry of Imagination is that the average age of people who are in it is 29. <clears throat> so I would be looking to bring a lot of young people in. I would create, a, the, the Ministry of Imagination would cut across all the different departments and it would uh, train all the different people who worked within government to think in a really imaginative, creative ways. Uh, I would create a National Imagination Act like I talked about before that would uh, uh, that, that would get all the public bodies to be looking at that. I would end austerity. I would reimagine how schools work completely so that the point of our education system is to produce young people who leave with imagination as a superpower. Uh, I would um, approach all the other areas like energy policy, food policy, through the lens of what if, and would invite communities to uh, um, do as much of this as they could in a way that was properly resourced. So I would set up civic imagination offices in every city across the country, and I would uh, set up, uh, I would introduce a, a universal basic income that would mean that people would uh, no longer have a lot of the anxiety that is very ruinous to the imagination and I would create a couple of bank holidays every year, the purpose of which was for people to do nothing and to do what they wanted in. And uh, maybe they would be called daydreaming days or something like that. Yeah, and I, and I would, I would uh, um, do as much as I could to reclaim streets back from cars. And the, the, one of the guys who was the former mayor of Bogota in Colombia said that the, the number of children playing in the streets should be seen as a key well-being indicator for the city. Uh, uh, and I completely agree with that. Well, we'll be voting you in when the election comes up. 
<laughs> when, the, when the elections for, for world leader come up. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Um, I'd, I'd just like to give you a chance to tell people when, when can they expect the book and how can they kind of find out about what you're up to um, in the future? Yeah, so there is a blog which is called robhopkins.net where every one of the hundred or so interviews I've done for the book are there a lot of them as podcasts so you can listen to them as well uh and the book will be published by chelsea green publishing and uh its title is from what is to what if uh is the full title of it from what is to what if unleashing the power of imagination to create the future we want and it'll be coming out i think in early october great well we'll be really looking forward to reading it when it when it does come out um rob thanks so much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you my pleasure thank you for having me thank you big thanks to rob for coming on the show when we're faced with problems like the climate crisis which are systemic and urgent we need to have the capacity to reimagine everything from our daily lives to the economy to the role of the nation One of the reasons this podcast was set up was to challenge the idea that there is no alternative to the status quo. History has shown us time and time again that just because things are a certain way today, there's no guarantee that they will continue in the same way in the future. But when our ability to imagine dries up, so does the possibility of new and better futures. Rob's work shows us that all over the world, there are great examples of people embedding imagination into public life, and we think that these should become the norm rather than the exceptions. With more efforts like this, it's not just our imagination as individuals that will get boosted, but the collective ability of all of us to dream of the world we want for ourselves and future generations together. Since writing the book, Rob has also launched a podcast called From What If to What Next, which you can find on his website and should definitely listen to. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. There will be more Utopia Dispatch episodes and interviews coming soon, so if you enjoyed this episode, then join us on the next one.